And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast on a Friday as we edge toward the end of the summer into football season. I know all the NFL fans are not going to listen to this podcast. I'm sorry. There's no NFL talk. Inching toward training camp. The NBA has finally calmed down after the Donovan Mitchell trade. We might have some stasis until training camp. But there's one franchise, not covered a lot, doesn't get a lot of media attention, that I don't know if they're comfortable in that kind of stasis. I don't know if they envisioned that kind of stasis a month ago, six weeks ago, two months ago, five months ago, when ESPN's Ramona Shelburne wrote a wonderful story about why the Russell Westbrook trade has failed the Los Angeles Lakers and what happens now. Ramona Shelburne, how are you? Hey, Zach, how are you? I think you... uh... I think you just described the Lakers' uh, mission statement: always be relevant. <laughs> well, there's. Relevant. I mean, are there seven documentary series about the Lakers yeah. going on? I can't even. Get, it's like a full time job to watch. I don't have time to watch the the one really on HBO, is. which the Lakers apparently don't seem to like very much. Uh, and I've read the book. I, that's all I'm. I've read the book. I commit Jeff Perlman. I read your book. I'm not watching fifty episodes. On the Lakers, I'm sorry. The Hulu one, I gotta watch. That's that's my homework assignment. I gotta watch it. You gotta watch it. I just uh, the 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 fifth episode came out, and I think things are starting to heat up. Let's put it that way. They're starting to heat up in the fifth episode. Um, so what because do you mean to, what do you mean they're starting to heat? It's not. A, we know what happens. It's what it, what what is well, what's heating up? Is there some plot twist that I don't see coming? Like Kobe I, gets traded to the Clippers. <laughs> yeah there's definitely in the in the in the hulu documentary i think that what you know the people always say what's new in in the documentary they definitely get into the dynamic between the bus family and the the rise the the inner the, the palace coup that happened a few years ago and you hear you're going to see in the first episode when you watch the hulu documentary that uh, we hear from jim bus for the first time since he was vanquished from Lakerland, we hear from Johnny Bus for the first time since he was sort of vanquished from Lakerland. Um, and from what I understand, because I, I I participated in the documentary too, I, I haven't seen myself yet. I don't know if I'm going to make the cutting room floor, um, but uh, but I know what they asked me about. They did ask a lot about uh, the family dynamic, the palace coup from a few years ago, and Jim and Johnny, the older brothers who were part of that. Um, I know they sat for extensive interviews for this, so we're we're gonna hear their side of the story pretty soon because I can I can start to see some of the plot lines building there in episode five. I have a very important question about that. Yeah, Jim Bus. Never. By the way, I've never talked yeah. to Jim Bus in my entire life. Never talked to him. Oh yeah. Did you have a baseball hat on in the documentary? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and I can tell his interviews were at Dan Tana's in L.A. because every it's a very distinctive uh, restaurant in L.A. Um, and I, I think, well, at least one of his, I know he sat for multiple interviews, like multiple hours, multiple interviews. Um, but yeah, baseball cap and everything. You, you wear a baseball cap everywhere. So you guys I'm must wearing have a-, a baseball cap right now. I wear <laughs> a baseball cap when I like haven't showered or my hair is a mess. Yeah. I, I don't wear it like to games and event, like to like <laughs> things. If I were sitting for a documentary, it, it's it seems like it's just attached to his head like he sleeps in it i don't know anyway uniform but, it's like a uniform i got it i got it it's my homework assignment let's talk about yep. the lakers um because there's been so much noise and drama around the russell westbrook thing that i'm beginning to forget 
parts of it. Like I like yeah. I was I, I forgot about the summer league snub uh right. in Vegas. And I had to go back and refresh my memory of how explosive the split with his agent was and exactly what his former agent, Thad Fouché, said in that statement. And if you go back and read that statement, the implication of it is that Russell Westbrook wants out of Los Angeles. That like there's been all this, should the Lakers trade him? The fit's bad. What could the Lakers get for him? And we'll talk about, I I only see four even semi-realistic destinations and those seem to be maybe, if not dying on the vine, certainly quieting as we approach training camp. But it's sort of been forgotten that that statement really strongly implied. I, Thad Fouché, the agent, said, I think the best course of action is for us to accept the support of Darvin Ham, accept the starting role that Darvin Ham has promised him, I think he said in that statement, which is interesting because I would not start Russell Westbrook. We'll talk about that. And and so we disagree, and there are irreconcilable differences. The implication, Ramon, I, I assume, was, the feeling of separation was mutual. Russell Westbrook wanted separation too. So has everyone begun, both sides, begun from what you've been hearing to accept the reality that they may be stuck with each other for a little while? Yeah. And I think that's been the case, at least my read of this and, and talking to the uh, to those inside the palace, if we want to just describe it that way, um, that's been the Lakers' read since the trade deadline. I mean, they, and there's two things in it. And, and I, I want to stress this point because I don't think everybody realizes this, this component of it. It's not about can the luck, the Lakers trade Russell Westbrook, because I think there are trades, right? There are trades that, that are out there. Um, but the other side of the trade is where if theoretically he were to get traded, would that team want him to play for them? No, I I can tell you the answer. No, none of the teams. Here are the four teams on my list. Utah, no. Indiana, no. Charlotte, I'd give a Charlotte like a 25% chance at a maybe. Spurs, no. Um, Okay. That's that's all I got. So let's, so if they did not want him to play for them, what are the two ways that that would happen? He would either accept a buyout or they would tell him to stay home. It would be a John Wall situation from Houston. Um, neither of those are good options. And I can tell you, like, and I, I think I reported this even last spring, um, Russell Westbrook is not a buyout guy. Like, you have to agree to a buyout, and that's not how he is wired. Um, he feels like, at, at least, and I've still checked on this, like, this is a, this is a guy who's very proud. And when you accept a buyout at least once in your career, like a Kemba Walker did in that situation a couple of times, um, uh, you, you, you're seen differently throughout the rest of your career, right? You're once a buyout guy, there's a, always a buyout guy. Once a buyout guy, maybe you're a minimum guy. Um, there's a sort of uh, demotion to that in your play, in your status that maybe he's already there and, and, you know, he doesn't want to, um, and maybe he's already in that category, but he's certainly not going to be the one who accepts that and signs on a dotted line, right? Like that's just not how he's wired. Um, and I think there's a line that I had in that story that you talked about. This is back from the end of the season, but, um, and I, I am, I'm going to quote myself incorrectly, but also I'll paraphrase, but like Russ 
is Russ because of his swagger and the way he leads with it, the way he plays with it. And you can't retreat from that. You can't let go of that because that's what made you, what, what made Russ Russ is his swagger. So if you, if you, if he accepts that, then he's no longer Russell Westbrook. Does that make like, and how, how and, and you and I look at how he played and, and the way he's thought of around in league circles and say, you should absolutely rebuild your value. Right. It's a, like, I still think he can play. I think he's still an incredible player in this league, but he needs the right um, system. He needs the right, that. I don't think that exists right now. Right. Like, does that exist right now? The best place for him to do that is probably LA because they're invested in him rebuilding his value. They're invested in him um, having some place on the team. I don't know that any of those destinations you're talking about would be invested in that. They would see it as a, a salary cap move. Oh, they would just see it as we're getting draft picks and whether right. it's one pick right. or in a lot Two. of these cases, I think it would have to be both picks. And as I talked about with Bobby Marks last week, the Lakers can't really protect those picks no. in ways that people talk about, like top 10 protection, lottery protection, then it yep. rolls over another year, top 10. They, it, it has to convey that year, which complicates what they can do with it. But look, on the one hand, the Lakers just didn't have a season last year. They had no lineup, not one five-man mm -hmm. lineup that played even 90 minutes last year. It's really hard to be an yep. NBA team that at least for certain parts of a season is trying to win and not have a lineup play a hundred minutes. It, it, the number one lineup played 89 minutes. Russ Davis, LeBron played 21 games together the entire Ooh. season. That's it. Those three guys appeared in 21 games. Um, the Lakers were minus 34 in almost 400 minutes with those guys on the floor. So you can sit there and say, well, they, they juggled, the supporting cast, they didn't have time to gel. They had zero continuity. Maybe this there's a universe in which those three actually can play together in some of the ways that we envisioned um, going forward. I actually just don't think that's true. I, I think Russ, LeBron, and Davis did not work, will not work, unless Russell Westbrook, and it's not just on him. It's on the coaches. It's on LeBron. It's on Davis. Unless he embraces a different style of play that we've all been talking about for 10 years, but specifically for these last two years, that he has shown zero inclination to embrace. And and my evidence for that is just what you saw on the floor. But also, you can play with the lineup data from last year yeah. any, way, any way you want. The three of them with no center, uh, LeBron and AD without Russ, LeBron and AD, LeBron and Russ without AD, LeBron and AD without Russ in a center. The, the Lakers were bad across the board. All those numbers are bad. And so I just don't have any optimism for, for that fit in terms of really cracking the place in the Western Conference stand, standings that, frankly, LeBron James expects them to be in. And so I look at, I mean, like, before we get into the possible trades, I mean, what's what's... If I had to predict their start, well, I'll, I'll ask you, what do you think mm -hmm. their starting five is going to be to open the season? It's going to be LeBron, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook. Um, where do we go? I Part of me says if Kendrick Nunn is healthy, Kendrick might start. Um, 
at, at the other at the other spot, and then uh, one of the centers, Thomas Bryant or Damien. Right? I mean, it's it's it, it maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's lineup based or whoever they're playing um, matchup based. So based on what I've heard, my prediction for yeah. what will be the starting five, not what should, what will, is okay. Russ, none, and I and the yep. none buzz, the none buzz is yeah, is big, is is big uh, out here, <laughs> is it's a lot of Kendrick Nunn talk, yeah, a lot <laughs> among twenty five people um, who care about it. Uh, Russ, none, LeBron, AD, and I think Damian Jones right now is the front runner to start yeah. center, and I am as big of a Damian Jones fan as exists in the NBA media. I think he's a good player. I remember talking to teams last year who are on the hunt for, let's say, pricier centers at the trade deadline. I was like, I would just give up two seconds to get Damian Jones out of Sacramento. That guy's good. Um, And uh, that's who I think will start. Who I would start as coach Zach Lowe, who's team who get fired 10 games into the season. But still, this is what I would roll with until they guillotined me. I would just do that same group. But Pat Bev starting for Russ. I don't see the point of acquiring the perfect 3 and D point guard to go around LeBron and Anthony Davis if I'm not going to start him around LeBron mm-hmm. and Anthony Davis. I don't see the point in starting him and starting Russell Westbrook. So I'm going Pat Bev, Nunn, LeBron, AD, Jones. And none at least gives me a shot to be the secondary ball handler that LeBron yeah. really, really needs to thrive. And that's, that's as we go through the Russ trade packages, part of the issue I have with some of them is I haven't found one. The Indiana one comes closest, and we'll talk about yeah. it, that I feel like if I'm giving up 20, 2027 and 2029, I got to be in the conversation to at least have a shot to get to the conference finals in the West. And one of the reasons I think some of those deals fail is – they don't give me another ball handler for LeBron. And look, the the start of the destruction of their title team, which has been a disaster as they've gone away from everything that worked, was trading Danny Green for Dennis Schroeder. Yep. And I liked that deal for the Lakers. I was wrong. I kind of still like the thought process two years later because I just think all the evidence suggests – LeBron needs a real medium to high level ball handler around him to succeed at the highest levels, to take some of the load off of him. Russ can't be that guy because he can't shoot. Pat Bev isn't that guy because he's not really a high volume pick and roll handler. Kendrick Nunn probably isn't that guy either, but I'm at least giving it a shot. You just, there's just no shot Russ is coming off the bench. I mean, it's so obvious that that's what needs to happen. Um, so I'll ask you a question, even though it's your podcast, I'll, I'll just grab the reins. How many games do you think Russell Westbrook gets to prove that he can play the way that uh, he need, they need him to play, uh, to play the way that it makes sense for them uh, before they talk realistically about, should we keep doing this? Five. If I'm the coach, five, five, five games. Because wow. it's because I have a 15-year sample size of him not playing that way, most of which, by the way, 13 of those years have been amazing, wow. and he should have played the way that he should. But that's me. How much is Darvin wow. Ham going to give him? 10? How much do I need to see? 10? 15? Um, and I thought what you were going to ask me is, how many games do I bring Russ off the bench before I completely lose him as a, as a contributor? 
and my response to that was going to be like, well, then, I mean, I just don't that that's part of the job of coaching and building a team. So, so you're implying, and I think this is actually quite reasonable that Darvin Ham is going to say, let's see how it looks. And maybe it's 15 games, 20 games. It can't be 40. If it's not working, it can't be 40. Yeah, I think, I think Darvin has done a really good job in the first couple months of his tenure here. And, and, and these months are just, you know, off season months where you meet up at the gym and, and see each other uh, behind the scenes. Uh, he's done a really good job of giving Russ the support and both, both public facing and privately that I believe in you and who you still are as a player. Um, you ha- to understand Russ, if you have to understand how he sees himself, not just as a, um, as a player, but as a person in this league, like, very every thought process begins with I want an MVP like Russ is a former MVP and that what I said like that swagger that's what he leads with that's how he sees himself if he doesn't have that swagger then what does he have so if you're his coach you have to have his back publicly and privately so far Darwin really has I really think that everything you've heard everything you've seen he's had his back Frank Vogel tried to do that but um I don't know that he either Russ didn't believe it or he didn't buy it or whatever it is, but Frank to his own detriment. I mean, it really hastened his downfall, kept Russ in that starting group, kept Russ in the, in the closing group for a lot longer than he probably should have. And, um, and even when he did that, it didn't matter because in film sessions behind the scenes, he was getting criticized. He would, he would kind of, uh, Russ would buckle it, you know, and, and, um, recoil at the way that they would talk to him and and didn't feel like the staff had his back so frank was well, trying to what, have his back but he's just he effectively it didn't get him anywhere because rusted by it well on the best teams the best players get the same treatment in film sessions as the back end of the rotation players so my response to russ recoiling at that is if you're getting singled out and LeBron is being left off the hook for rotations he doesn't make or whatever, and AD is mm-hmm. being left off the hook for a bad shot selection or bad turnovers, then that's fair to recoil and be like, wait a second, why am I the only one getting hammered? But Frank Vogel's whole thing the minute he took over the Lakers' job was, I'm holding the big two accountable on defense, mm-hmm. and that's going to include film sessions. So if, if unless that changed, then I don't really think Russ has grounds to recoil. If it did change – and and LeBron and AD were being left out of the criticism, then I think there is grounds to recoil. So I would say, and also, and I also think the role that Russ was sort of found himself in a lot, he just, he just couldn't embrace it. Like you and I know, uh, we see, you know, we've talked endlessly. I don't want to make you do it again about how he should be a role man and how great he could be off the ball. That, that's not appealing, <laughs> you know, or it wasn't appealing last year. Still could be one day. I don't know. Um, well, why Carmelo can't it be change, appe- right? Why can't it be appealing to say you can play that? W- we'll start you. We'll start you because you, you that matters to you. Mm-hmm. You want that respect level. We'll start you. We're gonna make a sub real fast. We're gonna take you out four minutes into the first and third quarters. For those four minutes, you are Draymond plus corner shooter plus defense. Then we're gonna bring you back in. 
with Lonnie Walker and Austin Reeves and Troy Brown Jr. and Thomas Bryant and the other guys are going to sit, you can be Russ for a six-minute stretch here and then another six-minute stretch in the second half and then crunch time will decide. In that role, A, we have a better chance of winning and winning elevates the stature of everyone. Think of how Vince Carter elevated his stature by having the late career sort of um, role change that he did in Dallas and then onward yeah. from there. And you can also average, because you're Russell Westbrook, you can, you're still going to put up like 18, 9, and 9 in that in that sort of bifurcated role that we talked about. Is it, I just don't understand because I'm not a higher achiever like Russell Westbrook, I guess. I don't have the swagger, the mindset. Yeah. I don't understand why that's just like an impossible sales job. So there's two questions that I am wondering as we go into the season. Um, was it the message or the messenger? Okay. Last year, you're, I understand you're, what you're asking is the right question and the right framework. Was it just the situation he walked into and how that message got delivered and who delivered it? In which case having Darwin and changing the whole coaching staff will matter. Um, or was it the message in general, which is either going to be accepted or never accepted? Um, that's the big question. That's what the Lakers are banking on this year by making coaching change and having a new staff. Darvin, we we know both of them. We know Darvin and and Frank Vogel, two very different guys, right? Two very different personalities. Um, they carry themselves differently. They have a different um, way about them. We'll see. Let's see how different it is. I, I can see how, um, and and this is something more personal for me. But I always I keep thinking about this. Is um, I remember I I was talking to uh, this doctor, the this doctor I know, a surgeon. And uh, somebody had asked me, oh, do you know so-and-so who does, uh, who does, uh, who does uh, you know, back stuff or whatever? And, uh, and I said, yeah, yeah. And I gave a number. And then later on, the, the, I said, did, so, did so-and-so call? And the doctor says, uh, no, they haven't called yet. And I go, oh, that's surprising because I, I know they, they really needed a reference. They asked me for it. Um, and he goes, uh, they, they must not be in enough pain yet, right? Like, you don't call the surgeon until you're in enough pain, right? Um, I don't know. Is it just that he's not in enough? Like this doesn't hurt enough yet. Right. Like, I, like to me, Zach, having watched that Lakers season last year and I, you know, I, I have to watch all the games, right? Like if, if, I, if it's not like a league pass team where I have to, you know, you could pick uh, one game a week to watch or check in with a team here and there. Um, I live in LA, the Lakers, uh, the Lakers and Clippers, the two teams here, we got to watch other games. Right. Um, the one game, and there were there were many low points last year. The one game that I could not, I it was hard for me even to watch, like for Russell Westbrook's sake, was the Minnesota game. Um, where refresh my refresh I, my memory. Okay. There was oh, a game the stink, in the, the he stinks. The he stinks yes. game. Yes. Carl I don't Towns. know how you come back from that one as teammates. <laughs> I know. Like Carl Towns. We know we and, go all the way back to the meniscus oh, thing in 2013 playoffs, yes. but on national TV, literally holding your nostrils to signify that the player stinks and is trash is a tough look. I mean, and like Carl Anthony Towns is like refusing to guard him or even put his hands up five feet from the basket. I mean, that was like you talk of like this was just blatant disrespect like it just was it wasn't just trash talk like, trash talk is trash talk this was like blatant disrespect and 
like I even felt bad for Russ in that game. I was like, whoa, that that was well. And the and the king, the king's doing the cold cold as ice every time you miss. Like I thought that as someone who's generally pro arena hijinks, like I thought it was ridiculous that the NBA wouldn't let people do the Giannis countdown in on free throws, uh, like uh, on road games. I thought like I remember that is it that serious. That the relentlessness of that was like, all right, this is the twenty first time you played this one. Like we we got it. Like two of them was fine. Yeah. Um, and like now they're teammates and like, I, it's funny because I, I, I actually was sitting at courtside covering that game where the Rockets, uh, and, and Oklahoma somebody played back when Pat dived into his knee and, uh, yeah, I was like literally 10 feet away from that play. And I'll never forget that play because, um, Russ kept playing. Like we didn't know he was hurt. Nobody knew until later. He just got this random press release from the thunder. I think it was the next morning saying Russell Westbrook's going to miss the rest of the year with a knee, knee injury. It was like, what? Wait, he played after that. Um, and that's how tough Russell is. That's also how stubborn Russell is. Like, he wasn't going to come out. He knew he was hurt. Of course he knew. Um, but, like, that is going to be hard for them to come back from. But I'll tell you this. Darvin Ham has said this publicly. Um, he – they he, he believes they can play together. He thinks they're going to play their, – their styles will mesh well. Um, like, I think they're going to be on the same court together. Like, they, the, the initial reaction a lot of people had to that trade was, oh, well, maybe the Lakers are just trying to get Pat Bev on the team to make Russell not want to play for them anymore. Um, I think if you go back to the agent statement, you can see where Russell's head is at. <laughs> okay? The, you know, that 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 say statement made it pretty clear that, um, Russ is very open to a trade. If not, he hasn't asked for a trade. I can, I, I've been assured of that officially, um, but he's open to that. And, and somebody who wants him and wants to empower him and wants him to be Russell Westbrook of old. Um, but he uh, <laughs> like, that is, that's not what the Lakers were doing here. They weren't trading for Pat Bev to, to upset Russell Westbrook. They're trading for Pat Bev because, they feel he has the defensive intensity, the attitude, the competitiveness. As somebody said to me, you know, he's going to make sure they don't lose two games in Oklahoma City this year. Remember, in Oklahoma, those games last year, everybody points those out as like, you, you cannot lose those games. Like, Oklahoma City's not really trying to win those games. And you can't go in there and lose them if you're a team that has any aspirations. They also feel, and this, this is something we don't probably talk about enough, Pat Bev will certainly talk about it a lot. By the way, you know he's doing a podcast this year. So great. <laughs> so great, right? Um, Pat, uh, they haven't had a locker room voice or leader, however you want to term him, since Jared Dudley left, um, who will talk to LeBron and say things to LeBron in a way that uh, maybe not even the coaching staff could or will, right? LeBron if you know him does very well with people who have some guts to say what needs to be said to him, right? Like what's the famous scene from the finals where Tyron Lue gets up to him in, in his face and says, I need more from you. You know, you're, you played great, but I need more. Like you need to do this, this, and this. He and Ty Lue in Cleveland had, had some, some very public shouting matches, right? Like they were very um, intense with each other. And LeBron responds to that. He likes structure. He likes discipline. He respects it. He's, one of the most incredibly conditioned athletes you've we've ever seen. He still is because he is that discipline. Um, Jared Dudley could do that for him. Jared Dudley would say, LeBron, you missed that defensive rotation. You need to be strong, more consistent on this side of the ball. Like, 
Jeremy would do that. They didn't have that last year. You know, uh, David Fisdale had that voice and had that role with him in years past, but David was not the coach. David was the assistant coach last year. Um, and, uh, you know, that's it. so if he were to say something, it wouldn't have the same weight. I think Pat Bev is going to say that kind of stuff to Braun and AD. And when once somebody says that, when they hold, like, as you said, when you hold your two best players accountable or when you say something to them, because let's be real, like nobody played defense last year for the Lakers. Nobody. They, there were maybe Spurs, maybe Austin Reeves played defense a little bit, maybe. Um, but in terms of consistency and uh, in a way that a winning team should be aspiring to play, nobody did it. And that's, start, that's where Darvin Ham's point of emphasis is. Everyone has to play defense. Everyone has to be held accountable. And let's see what that, that's the right starting place. Let's see where it goes. For the ones who get it done. Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Well, let's zoom out for a second because there's been a lot of rust talk. It goes without saying, but we'll say it. None of this matters if Anthony Davis isn't Anthony Davis, both defensively and offensively and offensively that means a he can't just be a spot up guy when you're playing a traditional center around with him unless he makes a requisite number of jump shots which obviously his jumper has been not broken but not functioning well since the bubble um and he, he it, none of this matters it's all over if anthony davis isn't a top 10 player anymore and i think anthony mm-hmm. davis is gonna have a monster season the other thing is the roster just isn't good enough right now it's it's mm-hmm. it's they they did fine on the minimums again. I think they did better than they did, or not just the minimums, but the mid level and all that. I think they did better than they did last off season. Lonnie Walker, fine. He's a thirty one percent three point shooter last year, th- low thirties for his career. Troy Brown, mid thirties on low volume. Austin Reeves, thirty two percent. Juan Scott Anderson, he's a he's a twelfth man. He's he's got a good feel for the mm-hmm. game. You know, none will see what he can do. Obviously, he wasn't an off season acquisition. The centers, I think, are both good fits if if they're healthy and Thomas Bryant, you know, had a brief period as a high volume accurate three point shooter. That's interesting to me in terms of how that works with A D. It's just not good enough when you look at the Western Conference. Clippers, Warriors, Phoenix, Denver. Those are the four teams I feel most confident in winning just a ton of games. They're gonna all win and, and Phoenix you yep. can tell me about chemistry at eight and all that. Maybe they're just broken. Maybe Maybe the Dallas game just broke them. I still think they're going to be a regular season wins machine. Dallas, Minnesota, Memphis. So those four alone, you're already in fifth place. Okay, you're already on the verge of falling into the play-in. Dallas, Mm -hmm. Minnesota, Memphis all have higher 
over under lines than the Lakers. I'm particularly confident in Dallas and Minnesota winning a lot of regular season games. The fit, the talent, the health factor, I think that's good. Memphis has some questions to answer without Jaron Jackson Jr. and some of the depth they lost in the offseason. But they just seem to outperform expectations every year. If those seven are above the Lakers, you're in the play-in and you are clinging to home court in the play-in. I think the Pelicans are going to be pretty damn good this year. And the Blazers yeah. aren't throwing away any games. The Blazers are going to try really hard to hang around 500 at worst. I just don't think the Lakers roster as is is good enough, which brings you to the trades. And the thing with the trades is if I'm trading both picks, I got to have a good enough roster to chase the championship, to chase a top three or to compete with those first four teams. And I'm not sure there is one. First of all, Russ alone getting off a Russ is a first round pick. So that's one. Getting a good player back is another first-round pick. And so you're starting to run into trouble. So let can we go through the teams real fast? Yeah. Yeah. Utah, only $2 million under the tax. So the $47 million salary is an obstacle. Here are the packages that work. Rudy Gay, Mike Conley, and Boyan Bogdanovich. That works. I could see the Lakers saying, hey, look, Mike Conley is kind of is kind of bad money right now. He's got $14 million uh-huh. eating into our cap space, which, by the way, we may prioritize. They may this These may all be non-starters because if they yeah. think they're getting a star whose name rhymes with Schmiree Jerving in the offseason <laughs> in free agency, then they're just not going to take any money on unless they know they can move it. By the way, a lot of people just, like, pencil in stars for the Lakers. Yeah. The Lakers max out. Max out, meaning they let everyone go other than LeBron and AD. Damian Jones opts out and they don't resign him. They trade their first round pick to avoid the cap hit. They max out at 35 to $36 million in room, assuming the cap goes up as much as it's allowed to. That's short of a 30% max it salary. Is. So, like, people are penciling in, like, what about Dame? What about the. You can't fit those guys. There's no way to do it unless you're doing something else. But let's leave that aside. Conley Bogdanovich, gay. I'm not getting any defense. Getting some shooting, some ball hang. I don't think it's enough, certainly for the two firsts. Can I negotiate, like, I'll give you a first, some swaps, a second, couple seconds, maybe. The second package is Clarkson, Bodanovich, Beasley. From what I've been told around the league, the Jazz feel like all three of those guys are worth a first-round pick. If that's the case, then there's no deal. That's out. Utah's out. Let's do Charlotte. Rogier and Gordon Hayward and and you know and do I get two first or do the Lakers convince me that Gordon Hayward is dead money ish so that minus is a first but then I have Gordon Hayward on my cap sheet for next season at thirty million dollars mm-hmm. I don't want that the Spurs have thirty million dollars in room so they don't have to worry about the salary I just like Josh Richardson and Jakob Pertle. That's a half measure. No half measures. That's not good enough. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it for me to give up even one pick. And they, by the way, Pirtle alone is probably, they would value him even on an expiring deal, is, is worth a little bit more than a first-round pick, I think. Throw in McDermott. Is McDermott? I like Doug McDermott. He certainly has a shooting. Can he play defensively against the best teams? I just It just feels like a half measure. And I, so I just keep coming back to Buddy Heald and Miles Turner. And I can tell you, Almost 100% for sure, it's taken both first-round picks to even get the Pacers to have a meeting about it. And even then, 
Herb Simon, who is 80-whatever years old, might look at them and say, I don't know, Buddy Heald and Miles Turner are two of our three best players. I don't really – I mean, are we going to just win 15 games this year? Am I going to see the 2027 and 2029 first-round picks? Am I still going to be involved with the team? I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I have the appetite for a full-on mm-hmm. tank job, which we've really never done here. But that's the one where I can see a lineup of Pat Bev, Buddy Heald, LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Miles Turner, and of upgraded shooting, of upgraded defense. Miles Turner can shoot well enough that AD and him can play together. Haven't upgraded the ball handling, which makes me nervous. That's the one Whereas the Lakers... I have a really long meeting about it, and I think the Pacers do too. But as of right now, I don't I don't really hear much noise about anything like that even really going on in terms of talks. Other than that, I just think the Lakers' reality is we're not good enough. And if we're not good enough, we're punting on LeBron's age 37-38 season, hoping for cap space next year. And that hurts. They're just in a corner. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, they don't have a lot of what uh, what has become a fun word in the biz, optionality, okay? Um, they don't have a lot of optionality with this roster and with the way they're constructed. How do you get more options? You, some of your players or your team plays better, right? I mean, it's – and then they have more value. Like, you, sometimes you can get more options by um, uh, changing things or, you know, by making a trade where you get draft picks, where you – uh, the Lakers can have more options if some of their players play themselves into valuable positions at the trade deadline or some some other time frame that we want to put on this. Um, I think the other thing you, you I would say with both of those with all those trade scenarios you outlined, which you're right about those four teams, um, there have been plenty of talks the whole time. The, we, you also didn't bring up the the Kyrie of it all uh, as a trade partner with Brooklyn. Well, that's um, over. I obviously, think for now. that's over. Yeah. Um, but my sense is um, you have to go back to that question we started with, which is: Do any of those four teams, or any of those any of those teams in general, do they want Russell Westbrook on their team? Do they want him, or do they want his salary? Um, if you if you have a team that might want him that it, where he could make sense for them, is not just as a, as a salary to expunge some money off their, their cap sheet, like, uh, you know, next year, um, then, then you have something, but I, I don't think any of those teams right now are trading for him with this idea that they're getting value there. If anything, he's costing value to, to, to trade. So it, I, I think it just, you keep making the phone. I think they've had calls. I know they've had productive calls with Indiana. They've had productive calls with, with Utah. But where, but as you said, if those trades were going to happen, they probably would have gotten further along by now. Right? I mean, they probably would have moved along. And now that the Donovan Mitchell trade is over, now that, now that um, some of the other business in the NBA has been settled, you can, other things can happen, right? There's a lot of stuff that's sort of been waiting on that plane to land. If you want to use that analogy um, and other things can shake out, but I, I don't. I don't. I think Utah is probably right that the the players they're holding on to right now have have value individually and not just collectively grouped into a trade. And it's a uh, it's an interesting it's interesting as we approach training camp because we're right back to the spot where the Lakers have really been since the trade deadline, which is their best move is probably to get everyone in a room and make them figure out how to play together and look like a 
like a better team and re at least whether that's to rebuild their value or to actually be the team. Um, and that's just, you know, people talk about who has a lot of influence in Lakerland. Um, that's one of those things Phil Jackson was great at. Um, he still has some influence in Lakerland in terms of um, overall direction. And, and what, what was Phil's greatest talent as a coach? He would get a lot out of other players that were seen as problematic, right? Like he was like, give me Dennis Rodman. I'll coach him. Give, I'll, I'll get Kobe and Shaq to play together. I'll get Michael to accept and thrive in the triangle. Like there's a, um, th there's a sort of uh, the coach's job is to make your players do hard things to make the, everyone get along and function together. And that is a very big job for Darvin Ham, but it's one of the reasons why they liked him is because he walked in the room uh, or actually for being accurate, he, he walked into the zoom. <laughs> um, the uh, most of the interviews took place on zoom in initially. Um, and right from the jump, Darwin started dictating terms. Like you started, Darwin started saying, this is how I'm going to do it. If you, if you want me as your coach, like, this is how I do it. And um, I think it really impressed people that he wasn't afraid of the challenge that this roster and this situation creates. He knows what LA is. He knows what it is to be a Laker. He was here during what I think was the, one of the most uncomfortable seasons I've ever covered in 2011. Uh, Mike Brown's first year. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was pretty, pretty uncomfortable. It was right after the lockout. Um, and, uh, you know, you were following Phil Jackson of all, of all coach. Phil's a tough follow, man. Uh, tough follow in the NBA. And that staff had it, had their work cut out for us. So he knows how bad it can be in LA. I think it's even, I don't know if it's even worse now, but everything's worse with social media. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And you can, you can always wait till the trade deadline, right? I mean, yeah. Indi Indiana's in a really interesting position where, they're going to be they're going to be pretty bad. I mean, their, yeah. their starting lineup is is probably Halliburton, maybe Buddy Heald. Maybe they want Buddy as a six man. But let's say Halliburton, Buddy Heald, the Matherin kid, Jalen Smith, and Miles Turner. Their bench is 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 not great. Are are they going to be bad enough to be in the mix with the teams that are trying to tank for Victor Wembanyama and and Scoot? Yeah. Uh, By the way, you not. see that. He's See that Victor's coming to play the G League Ignite. I can't wait. I can't wait. October. Um, are they bad enough to be in that? Do they care about being bad enough to be in that group? If the lottery odds are the way they are, they give you a little uh -huh. better better chance. They also Miles Turner's Miles Turner's an expiring contract. They have to get value for him one way or another. Yeah. One way to do that might be they have the cap room to give him a raise this season and then extend his contract off of that number. I know they've they've thought about that. Um, but I look at Indiana, I'm like, you've built from the middle before you've done it really, really well. Yeah. Maybe you can do it again, but right now it's like, you might not be quite bad. I think they're probably bad enough to be in that group, but maybe they're not. If they have healed and Turner, they don't have a, a huge amount of extra first round picks. Like some of these other teams like Utah and Oklahoma city do in Houston, they have two, one from Boston that's going to convey this year and one from Cleveland that's going to convey this year no matter what. And they're not going to be great picks for them. I don't know. We'll see. But you've, you've had some insight, speaking of Darvin Ham, specifically yeah. into his approach to, to LeBron James and coaching LeBron. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, and, and Darvin and I have talked about how his, his vision for coaching, right? When, you, when you're a first-time head coach, it's interesting. Um, you get to put all the things you've learned from your mentors into practice. And – one of the things he really believes in and has done as an assistant coach is 
distress, accountability, honesty. And he doesn't need to embarrass LeBron in front of anybody. He doesn't need to confront him to prove that he will do it. But if you have that open dialogue with your stars from the jump, if you, if you have that level of accountability and respect from the jump, um, the whole team falls in line. And I think he is, he, he said to me the other day, he's just, I cannot believe how good a shape LeBron is still in. He's just unbelievable in the way that he conditions himself, the way he shows up. And he, like, he really believes that the, the whole story of this team is going to be told on the defensive end of the team and in the way they keep, um, I think Darwin used the phrase circus, you know, out of the locker room. Like you can see it. You can see everything going around outside. You can see what everybody's saying, but you've got to create a protective bubble in that locker room and, and with the group. And um, he, he needs, he needs LeBron to do that both on and off the court. And same thing with Anthony Davis, same thing with Russell Westbrook, same thing with Pat Bev. Um, that's look at where Darwin came from. Okay. Darwin came from, he's mostly influenced by Mike Budenholzer staffs. Um, he was on Mike Brown's staff. That's Spurs culture. Uh, and it's, it's interesting to see Spurs culture in LA. They tried that with Mike Brown a couple of years ago. Didn't work. Mike has sort of gone elsewhere and um, had some success, but they're, but Darwin's a different personality and different voice than, than, than Mike Brown. Um, he is uh, a former player. I think that really carries a lot of weight, especially with LeBron. Um, and I think they've already developed a bond. Like they're in the gym every day and, and, and talking to each other about how the team should be. And I think if we, we'll tell in the first five games of the year, whether they've made some noticeable changes on defense, because that whatever you want to say about how Russ should play offensively, how Russ should, how, how Pat Bev fits with them, what the lineups might be. If they don't play defense, they don't have anything like they were, I don't not statistically the worst team in the league, but they certainly look like it on most nights defensively last year. And I know before his, his interviews, uh, Darwin watched all the, all the film. And that's all, that's all that jumped off the page. It's just defensively. When you have a situation where, you know, somebody might play defense for 15 seconds and then somebody has a letdown. Somebody might, you know, Bron was obviously focused on scoring. There's going to be a huge focus on Bron scoring this year. He's going to pass Kareem on the all-time list if he stays healthy. Um, you got to also play defense. That, that is the point of emphasis that Darwin has from day one. Two quick things before. First of all, I have really high expectations for Darvin as a coach. I think he's really yeah. good, and I think he's going to do really well if the ecosystem allows for it. Two quick things before I let you go. Number one, tell people what's happening in Maui this coming weekend, I think, or soon. And then two, please explain to me, because I had forgotten about this, the mysterious Genie Bus tweet <laughs> from July 4th that said, I miss Kobe Bryant. He would understand and explain everything that I'm not allowed to. Okay. Yeah. Honestly, he was the greatest Laker ever. He understood team over self, meaning your rewards would come if you valued team goals over your own, then everything would fall into place. All can reply. So Maui and then whatever the heck that is. So we've in LA, we've been talking a lot about the, uh, the Laker documentaries and Laker series that have come out. Most of them revolve around the Showtime Lakers, right? Um, the, there's the HBO one winning time, which is very entertaining. And then there's the Hulu one legacy. Um, also, entertaining but in a different way it's more that one i think is more for basketball uh people that and you you would like it even if you weren't a basketball person but um in uh the the lakers are going that that showtime group 
the that's Kareem and Magic, James Worthy, Byron Scott, Michael Cooper, Pat Riley. Um, they're all getting up there in years. Kareem just turned 75. And a lot of them have felt like, you know, they all stay in touch, but they um they've all felt like they want to uh get together. And so they're all going to Maui. Remember, they used to go to Hawaii to do um uh they used to go to Hawaii for training camps. They're going to on a big group vacation uh coming up. I think it's I don't know the exact day, but it's it's the, either this weekend or next week. And it's just the big Showtime Lakers are all going on vacation together. They're all, you know, Kareem's 75, right? They're getting up there. They want to hang out. And I know uh, Michael Thompson and I were on LA radio the other day. He was part of that group as well. And he, you know, Michael's like, stay in the hotel, team hotel, never leave the hotel. He's like a homebody. He doesn't want to go anywhere. Um, he wants to play with his grandson the, uh, when he's home in the off season. And he said, he goes, I wasn't going to go. You know, I was like, I don't need a vacation right now. I just want to stay home. The season starting. And Pat Riley and Magic Johnson called him and was like, why aren't you going? Come on now. And MT was like, oh, God, it's my coach calling me. Like, I can't say no to Riles, right? Um, <laughs> so, and Magic called me, can't say no to Magic. So everyone from that era is going on a big vacation together. And it's like the real Showtime Lakers going on vacation. And apparently there's going to be a practice. Like, a, And my, Michael says it's going to be a walkthrough. Like, it's just a... They're just going to, uh, you know, get out there and pretend. But do you, I don't know if 75-year-old uh, Kareem is going to get out there and do the sky hook again or Magic, who's older, all these guys. But you know when Pat Riley's on the court and the Showtime Lakers are on the court and they're doing a walkthrough, like they're going to play, right? Like we're going to see gonna the do, Showtime Lakers again. He's probably going to have them run suicides. I'll tell you two things. Number one, well, I don't care how old Kareem is. No one's touching the sky hook. Number right? two – if we don't get a recreation of the banana boat photo, I don't yes. even know what we're doing here. Like what? Look, like how, how? We need the Showtime banana boat. Okay, yeah. I know you got to go. Explain the yeah. genie tweet, tweet because I've been curious about this since it happened. Yeah. So I think a lot of that was uh, right in and around when they were in discussions for Kyrie Irving, and uh, and and by discussions I mean Brooklyn was not interested. <laughs> like. They were not interested in trading for Russell Westbrook for Kyrie Irving straight up. There was, there was maybe something with San Antonio that would have been a three-way trade, but um, then there was this idea that uh, did they not want to do stuff because it costs too much or whatever it is. There's this whole, uh, you know, like what, are the Lakers afraid to, to take on more money? It goes back to an Alex Caruso thing. And I think in that moment, like I, I know what my mentions look like all the time on Twitter. Um, I don't know what Jeannie Buss's mentions are, but I imagine they're a whole lot worse than mine. Um, <laughs> they're a whole lot more vitriol there. Um, she, uh, she's, she's a person who like, I, I think that, you know, the, the social media is out there. Like it's, it's intense. And um, Kobe was a confidant of hers and, and a, not just a confidant, but like a, a, a member of the family. Like she had a relationship with Kobe, maybe not quite as much as her dad had with magic, but, but it was, pretty close. Like she was really close to him. And Kobe always had a way of like jumping into the fray, like in those moments when the tension is boiling. And then when I remember a couple of years ago, remember when, when Kobe, um, uh, talked, you know, tweeted or said something in it about, uh, the Anthony Davis trade, like relax guys. It's Anthony Davis. Like you hear your name in trade talks. It's Anthony Davis. Like, like he always had a way of saying things and, and delivering messages that were, um, it, it was retired at the time, but people respected and understood it. And I think that's really, um, 
you know, it's, it's important to remember sometimes because I think there, uh, you know, there's a lot that goes on in the, in the NBA and trades that, that do or don't happen, but um, the, people can't always comment. Like you can't comment on a trade, right? Like you can't, and she's doing all these interviews for the, for the Hulu doc and all that. Like, there's just a lot you can't say. And so I think there was a lot of pressure there. That pressure has been lessened on that trade, obviously, because Kevin Durant is coming back. Kyrie seems to be coming back. Um, we'll revisit. But it's it's uh it's interesting, these these owners with the with the Twitters, right? These owners with the uh the 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 people in power who have a lot to say. Um, I think the, in those moments, who do you call? Like I know who I call when I'm under fire. I know who I I think she was just missing the person who sh- who would give her great advice who would give her great perspective and advice and felt like had her back in that in that public voice and and um you know i i think about kobe all the time like he comes up uh you know my thoughts but also in la all the time and and i know it does for her because she's he's a person she would have turned to in in a moment like that great stuff momo you always you always bring the heat you always know what's going on in Lakerland and beyond. Go hug those little kids of yours. They're adorable. And I will see you soon in Los Angeles, California. Thank you, Momo. Sounds good, Zach. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them, you name it. They won't find a satellite dish, but you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. I went- All right, let's bring in ESPN expert guru Kevin Pelton to talk about a team that you and I talked about in the aftermath of their big summer transaction. But as I was doing sort of like, all right, let's let the dust settle, look at what every team looks like in the wake of July. We haven't done this team yet, and I kind of want to get to it because separate from the trade connected to it, they're kind of an interesting team. High expectations last year, disappointment, high expectations again this year. The Atlanta Hawks, Kevin Pelton, fresh off trading three first-round picks and a couple of swaps, uh, mostly unprotected other than the pick they uh, are trading next year, to the San Antonio Spurs for DeJounte Murray, giving them, I think, a starting five, we all would assume, of Trey Young, DeJounte Murray, DeAndre Hunter, John Collins, Clint Capella. I like that group a lot. 
It's a good lineup on paper in practice. I think that'll be a really, really good starting five. Off the bench, let's say they keep DeJounte Murray with the second unit to avoid the Trey Young sitting on the bench sinkhole that they've fallen into all these years. Bogdan Bogdanovich, if healthy, let's assume he's healthy, be optimistic. Justin Holiday, who I thought was sort of a sneaky good part of the Kevin Herter trade with Sacramento to get a guy on an expiring who just comes in and fills a role. I think Jalen Johnson's going to walk in as the, as the I was going to say, the starting backup power forward. Just the backup power forward. And one of my favorite under-the-radar young guys in the NBA on Yeko and Kongwu as backup center. That's a really good nine-man rotation. After that, I think it gets a little shaky. My question to you is, how good is that nine-man rotation in the East? Like, where is this team going? What is this team? What are its strengths and weaknesses? What concerns you? I just feel like I kind of want to dig in on this team because, I, again, I like that nine-man rotation. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, to me, I feel like it's the top eight is really solid. And then Jalen Johnson, some reasons to be optimistic about him. I think it's the who steps up is the ninth man. A.J. Griffin didn't see him during summer league because of injury, but he was, and you know, he's probably a couple years down the road, but someone that my projection system really liked because of his three-point shooting at Duke this year's first round pick. Uh, Maurice Harkless is in the mix, I think, potentially there to to end up the ninth man if, if the young players don't develop as the Hawks. I anticipate, but uh, that's what I mean, Maurice. Want Har- to... That's what poor Mo Harkless always <laughs> is like. Yeah, I give you our ninth man. If like these other guys that we'd rather play don't work out, we got Maurice Harkless over there. We'll throw him in. You got Aaron Holiday for that role as well. There, there's there's some guys in Atlanta. I mean, do you want to start with like where they where they project? Yeah, what's your projection have for them? And and um, and that's going to be interesting because although they're young and intriguing. And rising, and I think you know, Okongwu looms as the starting center of the future for them once Capella deal expires in a couple of seasons, or if they trade him before that. I it's John Collins is young, although seemingly always on the trade block and never traded. He's the new he's Brooke Lopez with the Nets 2.0, who's just never traded. He's always on the trade block, but he's never traded. Um, I just they've traded pretty much all the stuff they can trade, other than their core players, to get Dejounte Murray, like. I'm interested in where they project for next year, but almost even more than that as maybe the Bucks and the Sixers and the Nets age or change or whatever. Like, how good can this team get? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you've got now Atlanta and Cleveland are in this interesting similar position where they've both traded a bunch of draft picks for an all-star guard in his prime. You know, I think Donovan Mitchell is certainly considered a tier above DeJounte Murray in that regard but DeJounte Murray you probably feel like is less of a flight risk that even though he's only got two years left on his deal and he can't really extend at this point because of the limitations on the the raise and an extension that he's been very excited to get to Atlanta we saw here in Seattle sadly I missed out because I was out of town but uh, he brought Trey Young and John Collins here to play in the crossover with him and that was their debut as a, a group and that was a lot of fun throwing lobs to each other so I very preliminary projections. I'm still a work in progress. Do not hold me to this. But top of the East, you have naturally Boston, number one, Milwaukee, number two. I think we can all agree on that. And then there's a tier of three teams that all have very similar projections here. And the Cleveland Cavaliers are not in this group. Ooh. They're a little lower by the original run of these. Those three teams being Philadelphia 76ers, who I think 
generally are penciled into that third spot, Atlanta and Miami. Does your I, I'm just imagining there's like a mainframe computer in the basement of your house that's just churning out numbers and beeping. I, I and wish there was. Does the does the, the so so wait a second? So it's it's Philadelphia, Miami, and who? Atlanta. And Atlanta is the third team. Do you have a win total that you want to peg to the Hawks? That I don't know if I feel the mainframe has with, the mainframe hasn't spit that out yet. Well, I haven't gone through and done the the minutes projections for anyone except the top teams in the East because I was literally doing this this morning before we started recording the pod, but it's in the high 40s. So I noticed one team, so you just named six teams. So that's your non-play-in field in the play in the East, right? Did you name six? No, five. Uh, five. Oh, you know, you know what I misspoke there? It wasn't actually Miami. Miami is in between. Toronto is the third team in that tier. Okay, that's so, how that's how preliminary these are. So we've got Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, Toronto, Atlanta. Yes. Did you did the did your mainframe just explode when it got to Brooklyn? Like ha, ha, Brooklyn's just not in there. Did it just did it start wheezing and there was a fire and the fire department had to come? Did I, did it just did, did it just give up? Brooklyn is in that next tier, along with Miami and Cleveland. And that's, I mean, I, that's interesting. When I went through the, are are you is that because it's the 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 mainframe is factoring in like just absences and catastrophe and doesn't know what to make of Ben Simmons because Brooklyn is as I've said before on paper, on paper <laughs> they're pretty damn good. But I'm, that's curious that they're not even in that top five. I mean, at some point, if the results on the court don't match the paper, the paper's got to change, right? I. I mean, going through Brooklyn's rotation, it's like this is just a bizarre group where they are really counting on Ben Simmons' size to deal with the fact that they don't have, you know, another real point guard besides Kyrie Irving. I mean, you might say that they don't have anyone other than Ben Simmons whose best position is point guard, which is a really interesting thing. But what does Patty also Mills? They have, I think he's off, off ball, ball running around. We've just yeah. given up calling. He defends point guards. He doesn't play like a point guard on offense. Exactly, which is why he and Ben Simmons are actually a pretty awesome combination in that regard. But they also then don't have almost any size on the roster now. It's Nick Claxton and Daron Sharp are the only guys you would really consider centers. Simmons is, has been discussed, may get some minutes there. Markeith Morris, if he makes the roster, which is not a foregone conclusion, like they there's not guaranteed money in that contract. Everyone got very like you know excited about the the Nets signing him, but he's still got to make the team. Uh, he maybe plays some minutes at center, but uh, they are they are they are very small. And that's one thing that I think is is I go through this projection process. Centers tend to rate better statistically right now than players at other positions because there's never been an easier time. And this is interesting in the context of the Hawks, who have a couple of these guys in Capella and Okongwu to shoot like 70% from the field as a center if you're not shooting threes and grab a ton of rebounds and block a ton of shots. So the fact that they don't have centers may, may be a factor in that projection. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm higher on the Nets than that projection. <laughs> like I, I think the Nets and in every I'm higher on the Nets than everything you just said about it. Sort of odd, misshapen, size deficient roster. I still I don't want to talk. The poor Hawks. This is what happens when you're the Hawks. You come with the best intentions to talk about the Atlanta Hawks, a team that is uh good, somewhat popular, I guess, nationally because of Trey Young, but super, you know, but but not sometimes under the radar. And they end up talking about the stupid Brooklyn Nets. Let's talk about the Hawks. 
This was the number two offense in the NBA last year. For all the hemming and hawing about, well, Trey Young's got to move off the ball. They're too heliocentric. Trey does everything. Offense was not the problem. They were the second best offense in the NBA. Now, the degree to which you think offense was not a problem at all probably depends on how you read their five-game walloping at the hands of the Miami Heat when their offense fell flat on its face and Trey Young facing double teams, triple teams, very mean defenders growling at him all over the court, averaged 15 points a game, shot I think 18% from three or 12% or some really low percent that started with a one and had more turnovers than assists in the series against Miami and laid bare kind of, I think, why they went out and got a second ball handler to, to ease the burden on Trey Young. So maybe offense is somewhat of a problem against elite defenses, but I think you just look at the roster. The offense is going to be awesome. They were 26th in defense last year. 26th. You can't be a good team and have the 26th defense. It's really hard. If you're going to be a good team, you have to have the number two offense or number one offense, and they did, and that was about as good as they could get. You look at their defense, KP, fundamentally, it doesn't look like the 26th best defense in the NBA. It looks better than that. Their big weakness was they don't force any turnovers. Well, they just got one of the best steals artists and best defensive rebounders, best passing lane thieves in the entire league in DeJounte Murray. And you look at the shots they allow, It's not they're not one of these teams that allows tons of open threes, tons of shots at the rim. It's a pretty average shot distribution. Teams just made everything from everywhere against them, which raises the question of like how much of that was just bad luck, how much of it is bad defense, bad shot contests, bad fundamentals, bad rotations, whatever. Where do you project their defense this year? Because that if they can maintain a top five-ish offense, and I don't see any reason why they can't, maybe you disagree, they get this defense up to 15th, they become a problem. Right, I, I think that's a reasonable possibility. I mean, that's one of the things that pro- the projections are going to bake in part of what they are using in addition to my own projection system for box score stats is the uh, the three-year RAPM from NBAshotcharts.com, and that is adjusted for opponent shooting, luck-adjusted in their terminology. So, uh, and, and Murray's going to help a lot because, I mean, I think one of the big things is if you have Trey Young and teams are going to attack Trey Young, you probably need to be really solid at the other perimeter spots around him. And with DeJounte Murray and DeAndre Hunter, who I would like to see force more turnovers, was probably part of that issue, uh, but is a really solid on-ball defender. It's it's now much easier to shift Trey Young to whoever the weaker of the opponent's perimeter players is going to be. I, you know, and... I don't see any reason why this can't be, despite Trey Young being one of the very worst defenders in the NBA at the point of attack. A, he won't be at the point of attack as much as you point out. And and we've seen them hide him on, you know, lesser offensive players, most famously in the Knicks series that they won two years ago when the Knicks just couldn't exploit him at all, nor could the Sixers in the following round, actually. Um, I, do, I don't see any reason why this can't be at least an okay defensive team. A lot has been made about the fit of Trey Young and DeJounte Murray on offense, about how these were two of the most ball-dominant players in the NBA. Well, you want to say something. You just made a face at me. What do you want to say? I feel like a lot has not been made of it. Oh, you I feel disagree. like it's okay, kind of been glossed over. Make, then make something of it, Mr. Pelton. So I don't think the question is, can they... I think part of the issue is that people will phrase this as, well, can they play together? And like, yeah, they're both really good players, and 
you know, hopefully Nate McMillan will adopt the Mike D'Antoni strategy with Chris Paul and James Harden of one of these two guys is going to be on the court at all times. So we've got like 12 minutes a night where it's Trey Young's team, 12 minutes a night where it's DeJounte Murray's team. And then you're only looking at 24 minutes a night where you're actually playing the two of those guys together. And Murray also is not, he's not a terrible catch and shoot three pointer. It's actually interesting having looked these up for Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell last week. We think of those guys as much better three point shooters, and they are overall than DeJounte Murray. But in terms of catch and shoots, he actually shot better than them last season, according to the the second spectrum data. Not the year before. They were so the, good the year before, I know Donovan dribble. Mitchell was like low to mid 40s on catch and shoot threes. So you never know what to make of those numbers, but continue, please. But that's not necessarily the relevant comparison for DeJounte Murray. It's Kevin Herter, who is now in Sacramento in one of the change in the change that led to them getting Justin Holiday that happened since we last talked about the Hawks, when he was the guy who was spacing the floor for the DeJounte Murray, John Collins, or Quint Capella pick and rolls. He hit 42%, I should say, last year on catch-and-shoot threes. And he's also taken seven of them per 100 possessions, where Murray, you know, the other aspect besides his track record before last season is he was only attempting three and a half of those per 100 possessions. And sometimes it's as much about you know, the, the your gravity as a shooter is as much about how frequently you're shooting as it is about how well you're shooting it. So you know, I do think that is going to be an adjustment uh, early on. And one of the things we talked about when I last came on is, you know, maybe if Trey Young is is willing to at least do a little bit of off-ball movement and be more of a threat there, because he only attempted a, a 1.5 catch-and-shoot threes per 100 possessions last year, then maybe the their most dangerous play actually becomes DeJounte Murray running pick-and-roll with one of those bigs, and it's Trey Young spacing for him. I don't think Trey Young is going to love that. Personally, I don't think think if Nate McMillan's like, all right, when you guys are on the floor, how about two thirds of the pick and rolls are DeJounte Murray and Trey, you're running around off the ball. That's not going to go over well. And frankly, it doesn't really worry me. And it doesn't worry me because a Trey Young is just that good with the ball. He's so good with the ball that even if the spacing is a little bit worse with DeJounte Murray on one wing versus Kevin Herter, I just think he's such an artist getting in the lane floaters, free throws, has every pass in the book. He's a wildly underrated passer, partly because he sometimes doesn't want to pass as much as he should, but he's a really good passer. And I just think DeJounte Murray, what you lose in shooting, you gain in speed, athleticism, and driving, where if his guy sloughs in and and Trey Young kicks in the ball, shoo, like a lightning bolt through that diagonal gap, he's in the lane and making things happen, and you add in the defense and the rebounding and and the turnovers he's going to create and the transition opportunities that will create, I think it ends up being a kind of a wash offensively, even if Trey Young doesn't change at all. If he changes 10%, 15%, he's never going to be Steph Curry. Everybody wants him to be Steph Curry. There's one Steph Curry. There's, there's not even anybody who really resembles Steph Curry. But if he gets 10% of the way there, great. That's healthy. I don't really, I'm not that concerned about it. Um, and and to me, you named the guy who, and you can expound on the Murray fit more if you want, but I want to make sure we hit like, I think the maybe the most important guy on this team now and going forward in terms of what their ceiling is as a team. Obviously, he's not the best player, or the second best player, or the third best player, or even the fourth best player on the team. I think DeAndre Hunter needs to make a leap for this team to really become a contender 
any time in the next two or three years. And that leap is going to come. A, he's got to take more threes. Four and a half threes per 36 minutes is not good enough. He's got to take more because he's a pretty good three-point shooter. And B, his decision-making with the ball on closeouts. He's never going to run a million pick and rolls. That's fine. He's going to get the ball kicked to him because he doesn't have a ton of gravity. Teams leave him not wide open, but they're not super stressed out about him. He's got to pump, go, catch, go more decisively and get way, way better as a passer on the move when the floor is kind of in flux. He had 68 assists and 69 turnovers last year. That's just not good enough. And to me, he's got to become the three and D and D where the second D is drive. He's got to become the apex of that for him, for this team to hit its ceiling. Yeah, I think the idea of DeAndre Hunter has been better than the reality of DeAndre Hunter so far during his career. And he's had his moments. I mean, particularly during when he was healthy at the start of that playoff run, I feel like that was a, and then leading up into the the 21 playoffs, that was a really strong stretch for him. It's interesting because, you know, you, you sort of mentioned, got to this with the the volume of it. He hit 38% on threes last year. Like that should be it. We've, we've found this ideal three and D without the, the drive part of it player. But because of the fact that he went from hitting 58% of his twos in 2021 to 47% last year, even though he hit 38% of his threes, he was actually less efficient than he was the season before and, and had below average efficiency on league average usage. You'd expect that usage maybe to even go down a little bit further this year with DeJounte Murray in the mix. So, you know, at that point, we need him to be, you know, 10 to 15%. I think, you know, above average in terms of true shooting percentage to be a good offensive player for them. And it's also especially interesting because he's coming into a potential contract extension here. And, you know, we've seen a couple of sub max extensions already signed by wings, obviously a lot of attention on the RJ Barrett deal. Then also the Keldon Johnson contract with San Antonio, who, even though he was drafted at almost the polar opposite end of the first round from DeAndre Hunter, probably a reasonable comp for, you know, what he's been in the NBA thus far. And that Kelton Johnson contract, I think set the bar actually pretty low for that player type. When you consider the the growth we expect in the salary cap. Yeah. DeAndre Hunter had an insane mid range shooting season two seasons ago and regressed back to about 40% on both floaters and long twos. Last season, which is about kind of what you'd what you'd expect. I mean, you wouldn't. He was like at fifty five percent or something bananas two seasons ago. If you can get up to forty five, that's pretty good. They've flirted, and he he seems to like this with using him as sort of a screen for Trey Young. If I get a switch that's favorable to me, can I play a little bit of bully ball? But he doesn't quite have either the power or the comfort with his power to really kind of just plow really far into the lane. He settles for a lot of long twos, and that's fine. If he gets a bigger guy on him, like Max Struess, is not necessarily bigger, but slower, took him off the bounce here and there. When he's decisive, he can do some stuff. He's just, the power and the decisiveness and the aggression just hasn't been there, and the passing vision just has not been there at all, really. You see flashes here or there of it, but he's a really important player, and I guess that's like, You know, you look at this team, let's just say John Collins is on the team long-term. You know, again, he always seems to be on the block, but Trey Young, DeJounte Murray, DeAndre Hunter, Akangu, Collins. These are really good players. Trey Young is the only, I think, 
all-NBA level guy among that group. He's sort of a fringe all-NBA guy every season in the conversation for one of the last two guard spots. Murray's never really been there. Collins never been there. Capella, like, one year was like, oh, you know, he deserves a look at third-team center. No, didn't really get close. Collins hasn't been there. And, and it's just, is that... Why does that leave me a little cold? Why does that nucleus leave me a little cold just in terms of, like, can I build a title contender out of that group? Because I look at him like, that's one all-NBA guy and four guys, and they'll tweak the supporting cast here or there. Maybe Bogdanovich stay. I don't know. We'll see what the – maybe Griffin turns into something. Maybe Jalen Johnson turns into something. Like, those guys are all – could they all be around like the 30th best player in the NBA at some point? Maybe that's a little high for a Kongu and Hunter. Maybe that's too high for them. But why am I a little, why do I look at this and I just don't get as, ex- I'm not as excited as I should be, KP. Why is that? I mean, maybe because Cleveland has like four guys who, you know, three, the if you take Trey Young out of the mix, the other four are pro- possibly better project long-term than the second best guy in Atlanta. I mean, that, that might be the interesting point of comparison here. I mean, I think the, you know, the vision for the Hawks is this unit is probably last year's Mavericks, right? Like DeJounte Murray is a better overall player than Jalen Brunson, but him is that second shot creator and, you know, guy who's kind of clearly elevated above the other role players who were surrounding the heliocentric star in, in that case, Luka Doncic here, Trey young. And it, that that group is good enough to win you a couple playoff rounds. Is it good enough to, as you were discussing with Ben McMahon on the last episode, to win you three or four? That's a little little dicier, I guess. That's probably. And I, you mentioned Griffin and Johnson. To me, the guy who could potentially change that is Okongwu. Like, it, along with DeAndre yeah, Hunter, I, to I, me, I he bet, supplies the I upside. I bet people snickered. I bet people snickered when I said, "Could they be like all around the thirtieth best player in the NBA?" And let me be clear. Hunter and Okongwu right now are, are nowhere near that. I don't know if they would crack the top 50 or 60 best players in the NBA it, right now. Maybe not either of them. And I don't, I don't think it's, it's in the most reasonable band of outcomes to expect either of them to get to that level. But I, I like it. Tell me why you like Okongwu so much. Because the, what we've seen of him as a backup and sometimes starter and sometimes just playing more minutes than Capella – I think he's really exciting. He's a little undersized by traditional five standards, but I just feel like he's been productive, and yet we've only seen glimpses of sort of the completeness of what he can do. I mean, definitely because of the injuries, we've only seen glimpses of it. I mean, he even though he's a little undersized, still blocks shots at an average or better rate for a center, and then also has the ability to potentially be this switchable defender that gives you an element that you just don't have with Quint Capella. So also a very high percentage finisher. If he can be someone who is a threat in the post when you switch a smaller defender on him, maybe that's not as important in Atlanta's case because Trey Young is the the safety guard against switches. They don't necessarily need the big guy to be that, but that's a, another nice piece to the puzzle that I think he can add to the mix down the road that we haven't seen thus far. Yeah, I just, I'm really interested in this team because I, I like their roster well enough. I, I do think they're behind at least Philly, Milwaukee, Boston as the, as the clear top three regular season teams in the East. We'll see what the hell Brooklyn is. Miami never falls too far. Miami is the ultimate high floor team. I think like even when you worry about them, you're like, oh, my God, the floor is just so high for them that even if things go haywire, they're still pretty good. And just medium to long term, 
the Hawks are probably still a tweak or two away from really butting into the best, best teams conversation. And I just, without the picks and without a lot of pathways to cap space, I do think there are ways to make those tweaks and they're going to involve really creative trades and maybe development of the young players. I'm just fascinated to see how it goes. But I understand why Atlanta fans are excited about this team. I think it's a good team with the potential to be really good this season. And going forward, they're pretty young. They're they're not flexible cap-wise, but there isn't a contract on the books where you're like, well, that's a d- devastating contract. Like, I, I think it's... It's interesting. It's a little blurry, but I I like this team. I'm I'm in, I'm intrigued by them, and I'm particularly intrigued by. I really want to see what Hunter and Akongu can become. I think the financial element is really going to be an interesting one for them. I mentioned the Hunter extension, where that comes in. I think is going to be really important. You know, right now you look at it. First off, they're they're barely into the luxury tax right now, and basically enough so that they can't just trade. Holiday or Kaminsky at the deadline and get out that way. So, or, or fill that roster spot and get out that way. So maybe it's trading Harkless eventually for someone who makes a little bit less money. Maybe it's trading both of those guys. It'll be interesting to see because I don't think you want to start the luxury, the repeater tax clock right now. No, you, you look at their roster and it is 100% likelihood that they will make a tax duck trade at some point this season. It just depends on who it is and what, if anything comes back. Right. And then down the road, the Okongwu's development is so important in part because trading Capella is the obvious move that they make to deal with their tax bill because they're going to have kind of a one-year window, I think, between, you know, DeJounte Murray gets a huge raise from the $17.7 million he's making in 23-24, the last season of his contract, to 24-25. That's a year before the cap spike, if I'm remembering this correctly. Uh, you know, Bogdan Bogdanovich also, he's up by that point. So we'll see, you know, how they handle that. But that's where I think you'd look to trade Capello in the last year of his contract and make a Kong with a starter and kind of go from there. I just don't know what you're going to get for Clint Capello, who two seasons ago had a fantastic year where he did merit a look at third team all NBA center, at least a glance, at least a look, at least a look up of his statistics. And last year, recovering from an Achilles issue and other things, he just wasn't the same guy on either end of the floor. And if if that proves the permanent state of Clint Capella, I just don't know what him making 20, 22, $23 million over the next two years, three years really, really gets you. But he's a, he's a good player. And as you said, the cap's going up. So we'll see. It's an interesting team. I'm, I'm excited to watch these guys. All right, KP, you need to go um, fix the mainframe in the basement, get the screwdriver out. Um, I will see you in Los Angeles for our NBA Summit in, uh, in nine days. Let's have some beers, my friend. I'm looking forward to it. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.